when you look in a lot of Masonic sources, they really do think of themselves. They say the difference between a beast and a man is the same as a man and a Mason. But that's why I think the Catholic Church is their number one target. Yeah, they want to go after Christians in general, but they're very, very clear in many of their writings that the big kahuna is the Catholic Church. Do you know that right before he became Pope, Joseph Ratzinger was asked a question. He was asked, who is the greatest of all enemies threatening the Catholic Church? And after a pause, he responded, Freemasonry. Really? I think most people think Freemasonry. Isn't that like people with tinfoil hats believe in that stuff? None of us. Well, there's a new book out by Tan Publishers, and it takes a deep dive into Freemasonry in a very interesting way. I'm going to introduce you to the author. His name is Joshua Charles. He is a number one New York Times best-selling author. He is a historian, a classical pianist, and a former White House speechwriter for the Republicans. He has degrees in music, government, and law. He came into the Catholic Church from Protestantism in 2019. And you know, this is going to be super fascinating. We're going to divide this up into two parts because it's a really deep dive and it is going to be worth it. You'll see on this episode of The John Henry Weston Show. Stay tuned. Take a look at this. This is Cardinal Burke talking in 2017 about demonic forces entering the church at that time in 2017. Hard to believe that so long ago. This was given at Rome Life Forum, a conference that LifeSite has been running since 2014, actually. Do you know that we're running another one this year, October 31st and November 1st? That is right at the end of this horrific Synod on Synodality. October 31st, November 1st, 2023. Come join us in Rome. Go to romelifeforum.com for more information. Watch Cardinal Burke give this snippet on demonic forces entering into the Vatican from his talk at Rome Life Forum in 2017. It seems clear from the most respected studies of the apparitions of Our Lady of Fatima that it has to do with the diabolical forces unleashed upon the world in our time and entering into the very life of the church. For the recovery of peace will be a gift from heaven. But it is not properly speaking the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Her victory is of another order, supernatural, and then temporal by addition. It will first be the victory of the faith, which will put an end to the time of apostasy and the great shortcomings of the church's pastors. Joshua Charles, welcome to the program. Thank you, John Henry. It's an honor to be with you. You've played a huge role in my conversion, and I love LifeSite. So thank you. Oh, praise God. Let's begin as we always do with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. So this is very interesting. You're republishing a book, first published in 1885. Why do that? Well, it's funny. I read it during the lockdowns in 2020, uh, you know, that uneventful period of life for all of us. And it was remarkable in its prophetic prescience, I guess you could say. Um, essentially, in 1884, Pope Leo XIII had written Humanum Genus, which was his encyclical against Freemasonry, for those who maybe don't know. And at the end of that, he called on Catholic clergy, Catholic claimant to tear off the mask of Freemasonry. 
And so a father, well, Monsignor Dillon, George Dillon, he was an Irish priest who was a missionary for many years in Australia. He saw it as his duty to comply with what the Pope said and to tear off the mask of Freemasonry. So while he was in Edinburgh, uh, he was going on, I think he was just going on a, a lecture circuit in the UK, but he was in Edinburgh at the time. And he delivered a number of lectures on Freemasonry to do just that. And he reduced it to a book and it was published the following year. So that book I read in 2020. And despite it being published 140 years ago, almost, I was stunned by how relevant it was, not only to the last, you know, previous 140 years, but frankly, to what we've potentially been going through since uh, since 2020. Unpack that for us. So Freemasonry, a lot of people regard it as, you know, that's like a conspiracy theory, that whole thing. Unpack this for us. Is it a conspiracy theory? Even if it wasn't back then when it was, you know, in its heyday, it surely seems it doesn't exist now, doesn't it? I would say it's it's uh, it's been so wildly successful that most people don't even realize it anymore. I would say that most of the concepts that most modern people believe are Freemasonic in origin and spirit. Uh, we could go into a lot of different aspects of that. There's political aspects, theological aspects, um, but politically, I mean, we outlined in the at the uh, in the description of the book. Uh, kind of the highlights of, of everything it covers. So among the thing it covers is here was the agenda. They wanted to destroy the temporal and then the spiritual power of the papacy. They wanted easy divorce laws across the world. They wanted marriage to be as easy to break or if not easier than a business contract. So think no fault divorce and whatnot. They wanted completely secularized education. They didn't want the church or any Christian influence in it whatsoever. They wanted complete and total separation of church and state. They were animated by a socialistic, communistic sort of agenda. Uh, I could actually go into a little bit more detail on this at, at, at a later point, but but highly materialistic. And ultimately, it was leading toward a form of sort of pantheistic nature worship. Uh, and I don't, I'm sure many in your audience would think, like myself, that that sounds quite uh, familiar. And so, and and the reason it's heading toward a sort of pantheistic nature worship, and we can get more into detail if you want, but essentially the fundamental difference I've concluded between the Catholic faith and Freemasonry, and really Freemasonry is a term, somebody doesn't have to be a card-carrying Freemason to be a Freemason in the sense that Leo XIII and Monsignor Dillon are talking about, and they both make this clear. Freemasonry is just kind of their catch-all term for occultic sort of associations that are engaged in these sorts of things, these plots to overturn Christian civilization. But the essential difference is we as Catholics believe that we can't save ourselves. We must be given the Holy Spirit in baptism and the sacraments if we fall, and that we're given this by God's grace, and that when we're given it, we, our souls become a temple for his presence. So we believe that the soul, our soul, must have the divine come and inhabit it. The root of all occultism is the opposite. It's that the divinity already resides in human nature, uh, waiting to be, you know, latent, so to speak, waiting to be unlocked by their very by their gnosis, their knowledge, their particular knowledge, their rituals, their signs, their symbols, and that in in this is salvation rather than a participation in the divine nature itself. They believe it's already there, and so when we're heading toward pantheism, it's it's sort of the sense that. The divine is intrinsic to nature itself, and you don't need grace. That's why I coined a term in there. You know, I come from Protestantism, 
And so I wanted to use a sola something because, you know, a lot of the Protestant heresies were sola scriptura, sola fide, whatever. So I describe this as sola natura, nature alone. And I compare it to Satan's fall. This is what St. Thomas Aquinas said, Satan, the reason why Satan fell wasn't that he thought he could become God. Satan's too intelligent to, to know that, to, you know, to believe that. It was because he wanted to partake of the beatific vision without grace. He wanted to do it by virtue of his nature alone. And that's fundamentally what all occultism and all Freemasonry is about. Pope Leo XIII calls it naturalism. Um, but it's this idea that nature itself is sufficient to attain its final end, which we would call the beatific vision. And of course, which we as Catholics say is completely and totally irreconcilable with the faith. You've sort of mentioned all the ills that we're currently dealing with in society. Um, and we'll we'll skip the first one about that was directly about the papacy. But you mentioned their divorce, sex ed, separation of church and state, communist agenda, material... How in 1885? And why is that the agenda? Okay, so they want to go to nature worship, but why these things? I think ultimately because it lowers the horizon of human destiny. It it lowers it from a divine end, one that can only be attained by the help of the divinity, to one that can be attained by ourselves. You shall be as gods. This all goes back to the garden. Um, I mean, I, I quote from a number of Masonic sources, direct Masonic sources. This is not, I encourage Catholics, if you're looking for quotes and stuff, don't rely on brainy quote and things like that. Like find the actual books. Archive.org is a great website. But from actual Masonic books where they explicitly claim that they are the restoration of the pagan mystery system that preceded the incarnation of our Lord. And we know from Paul, who I believe is quoting the Psalms, that the gods of the nations are demons. So before the incarnation of our Lord, there was literally an active alliance between humans and the demonic. And this was holding the world in thraldom to ignorance and superstition. And of course, the Jews were monotheistic, but even they kept falling back into various forms of idolatry and paganism. And so and then our Lord comes. And what does he do? He raises the horizon of human destiny. He He brings all the insights of Plato and Aristotle and all the all the uh, wonderful visions of the prophets of Israel, he shows that they're actually kind of one and the same thing. And he raises, says, no, the ultimate promised land is heaven. But to, to bridge that gap between the infinite creator and the finite creature, you need grace. You need, your soul needs to become a temple. And so the Christian mysteries end up supplanting and destroying, really, uh, defeating the pagan mysteries. Um, while Freemasonry sees itself as a restoration of these pagan mysteries. That's what many of them say. Now, another point that Leo XIII and Monsignor Dillon make frequently is that not every person who's a Freemason, especially the lower levels, it's not like they know about all this. This is, it's, it's, and many of them have been suckered, frankly. That's what essentially what they say. And so the reason why they want to restore these pagan mysteries is because it's the pre Christian system in which man was finding salvation in some faux attempt to be like God which is what Satan had tempted us into in the first place. That we do see. I mean, that is rife today with uh, different indigenous movements and back to the earth and the mother God that we hear about from a lot of our own spiritual leaders. Uh, unbelievable, the whole Pachamama scandal and all these things. But they are very much going back to a pagan worship. I remember I was um, here in Canada when Pope Francis came to Canada and they had the the witch doctor, shaman guy, you know, blowing a uh, bone whistle to four directions while, you know, the, the, the Catholic clergy there had their hands on their chest, eyes closed. 
but literally saying, you know, uh, I want to ask the grandmother of the West or something like that, the Western direction, to open the circle of spirits to come and join us here. That sounds to me like exactly like what you're talking about, like a, a kind of pagan former thing that existed before, but it's trying to be brought back in, not only to secular culture where it's coming on strong there too, but also even into the church. I'm not going to cite the sources I've read. You know, my spiritual director always knows about it. And there have definitely been some sources where we're like, nah, let's not go there. Uh, these things, we need to be very careful about these things. But I essentially became convinced through my study of this topic, uh, Masonic sources themselves, that the essence of what they were doing was, an, like I said before, a reestablishing, I guess you could say, of an active alliance between human beings and the demonic. That's what they're all about. Um, and I, the another way I phrase it in the book is, you know, <clears throat> the difference between the Catholic faith and occultism is we believe our souls need to become a temple for the divine, and we can expel the divine if we purposely choose to sin. Uh, they believe the divine is already within us. Another way that I think is helpful to think about it is we believe we can only be saved by, be, by being incorporated into the second Adam. They believe you can be saved by remaining in the first Adam, nature bereft of grace. And so that's why there is a sort of magical approach to nature among all these movements, because they really do believe the divinity is already latent within nature. They don't believe that that infinite gap requires grace to be bridged. And so that's what all this supposedly secret knowledge is about. And that's frankly, you know, I actually in law school, somebody tried to recruit me to the Masons and I was very tempted. I was a Protestant at the time. Now, Masons never say, will you join up? They don't do that. Their policy is they will at, wait for you to ask, because when you ask, there's already enough curiosity and probably vanity and pride that's been stirred up to get you to ask in the first place. I mean, I mean, my goodness, I grew up watching National Treasure, like this idea of being part of the secret fraternity that exercises, you know, control, punching way above its weight, whatever. That's that appeals to all sorts of vanity and pride and whatnot. So fortunately, I didn't do it. Something was holding me back. Um, and the guy who was asking me seemed like a decent guy in many ways. But and but then I got back home to California after law school and uh, the People's Republic of California, as we call it. And uh, and then another man who I met who was a very senior leader in Freemasonry, he also was started to meet with me. And I hadn't quite become Catholic yet, but I, I was beginning, I hadn't read Monsignor Dillon, but I begin, was beginning to read all sorts of stuff. So I, I think this, this whole idea that if you have this certain gnosis that you kind of access this mystical knowledge of nature um, at the higher levels, I think it, it, it's meant to work on the very same thing that caused our parents to fall, our first parents, pride. Uh, you shall be as gods. That's what, it's all, that's what it all comes back to. This is interesting because this is a different look at uh, Freemasonry than we're used to. Most of us know of Freemasonry and think, well, it's this thing with 33 degrees. It's kind of like the Knights Columbus, but the, the pagan version, and it's kind of anti-Catholic. And you're saying the degrees is one thing, but there's not even that many people are doing it anyway. Frankly, I don't think they even have to. I don't think you have to be a card-carrying Freemason to be fundamentally Freemasonic these days. I think you just need to take Oprah at her word. I think you just need to believe along the lines of what Oprah believes. Uh, there's a lot of new ageism that's everywhere in our culture. Um, there's a lot. I mean, when you read a lot of the World Economic Forum stuff, I've seen you report on Yuval Harari and, and Schwab and all those all those folks. Um, I've, I've been reading Yuval Harari's books. They're even worse than people realize. I mean, they really have reduced everything to the material 
horizon, everything. And they believe that they can eventually control this material horizon such that, I mean, as Yuval Harari says many times, we shall basically be as gods. And Yuval Harari in his book, I'm doing this from memory, he literally talks about we will exceed, you know, because in the past the pagan gods used to be men, used to be women, and then they were later divinized. And so Yuval Harari talks about we're going to exceed them. We're going to exceed Zeus. We're going to exceed Neptune, et cetera. So it's very, very creepy. And so I think I think the reduction of everything to the material, and that's why it's related to socialism and communism. You know, Marx's whole theory of history, dialectical materialism, was that you have a thesis and an antithesis, antithesis, and that provides the impetus to reach a new synthesis. Now, I think a good way, well, here's my book. Uh, well, my book, you know, I edited it. But I think the, a good way to uh, explain it is maybe people are familiar with the idea of potential energy. You know, if your book is laying on your desk, there's no potential energy there. But when you lift it up, you know, the gap there provides potential energy. And the higher the book gets, the higher the potential energy. So when you're seeing a uh, bifurcation, in, I mean, as we're seeing a lot today, the, the wider and wider that gap gets, the more potential energy is there. And that potential energy provides the impetus to push the society forward in the direction that they want to go, um, which is why we constantly see, at least in America, I'm, I know you Canadians are way on top of things, you know, but, uh, but uh, you know, we're constantly seeing no matter what we do, we're constantly going in a more leftward direction. But really, this is the, it's their attempt. It's their Marxist materialistic dialectic attempt to literally control history. And when you hear, uh, when you look in a lot of Masonic sources, they really do think of themselves, they say the difference between a beast and a man is the same as a man and a mason. So there really is this, I mean, Albert Pike talks this way, Manley P. Hall talks this way. I mean, I got that specific line from the 1723 Anderson's Constitution's well-known Masonic document. So they really do believe that they have the forces of history within their control through this sort of materialistic uh, paradigm. And, and so it's, uh, it's very real. They really do believe in a whole class of untermenschen. Like they, they actually believe themselves superior. Yeah, I, I believe so. And, and, you know, and to be very clear, my goal, and I was explaining this to you before we, we started, um, my goal with this book when I was reading, I was like, people need to read this, not because I think we all need to know the inner sanctum of Freemasonry. I don't think any of us need to know that, frankly. But I think, you know, at least in the Catholic Church, I'm very empathetic with a lot of people who have different views of what's going on today. I don't claim to fully understand the crisis we're in. I don't think you would claim that either. I don't think any of us should. But there's a there's a class of Catholics who, the moment you bring up a topic like Freemasonry, they immediately shut down and say conspiracy theory, conspiracy. It's 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 false, stupid, whatever. I, I'm sorry. I mean, I quote Robert Moynihan inside the Vatican, very respected scholar, friend of Joseph Ratzinger at the time. And I saw this article in April of 2020 as I was reading this book, but as we were all going through the first shutdown almost worldwide of the public celebration of Easter since the Diocletian persecution, perhaps, um, he was saying he had recalled during this time a conversation with Cardinal Ratzinger, but just prior to his becoming Pope, and he asked him what the gravest threat to the church was. And he said, Cardinal Ratzinger, very quietly in his normal way, uh, didn't say anything for a bit, but then just looked at him and very solemnly said, it's Freemasonry. Okay. And then we have multiple popes, not just Pope Leo XIII, but many before him, 
Um, and it's even in canon law to this day that you cannot be a Mason and a Catholic. There's severe penalties for it. Um, so there are many Supreme Pontiffs that were warning about this. So if you want to say that this sort of stuff is a conspiracy theory, tinfoil hat sort of stuff, then you must also say, and I think the gauntlet needs to be thrown down, you must also say that multiple Supreme Pontiffs of the Catholic Church were tinfoil, conspir tinfoil hat conspiracy theorists. If you're willing to do that, fine. You're at least intellectually consistent. But if you're not, then stop. Now, on the other side, we have some people who think, you know, one of my one of my dear friends who everybody in the audience would know, but I won't mention it, uh, says there's not a Mason under every rock. And even Leo the 13th says this. He says we cannot blame all the problems in the church on Freemasonry. OK, uh, Monsignor Dillon says this, too. So we need to be careful about that, because I think there can sometimes be a tendency to externalize the source of all evil. This is one of the reasons why I always watch your show. You always bring it back to. Well, first of all, you're a very erratic guy. You're very peaceful. And St. Francis of Sales says the number one thing we need to maintain is our peace of soul. And so uh, we can't just externalize all the sources of evil and vice in the world. We've, we really have to be aware of our own souls. And so I want, I want to avoid that extreme as well. So, You know that here on LifeSite, we love to tell amazing stories. There are a few so heroic and amazing as the story we're about to tell you that's coming soon. You gotta watch this. When I was in seminary, I was reading a book by Henry Nouwen. He talked about a nuclear man, you know, and people who grew up in the 1980s were kind of formed by that immediate and constant threat of nuclear annihilation. My generation has grown up, you know, under the specter of priestly sexual abuse. What say you, Mr. Poor Person? Is the defendant guilty or not guilty? I think that for many of us, that has also been all-encompassing. You know, I mean, I entered the seminary in January of 2004, and it's basically been there for me from in the beginning. One priest's sacrifice for many priestly sins. The story of Father John Hollowell. Coming soon from LifeSite News. One of the things that I noticed about the list that you gave, it goes right along with Cleon Skusen's list. Cleon Skusen was uh, one of the guys under Reagan who uh, worked on communism. He wrote The Naked Communist, which is, at least according to Reagan, the greatest book on communism. But it goes through this laundry list of the goals of communism that sound exactly like uh, what you mentioned there's the goals of Freemasonry, about divorce, about sex ed in schools, about separating the uh, church from the state, uh, things like this. What is the relationship there between Freemasonry and communism? Well, we know that the Holy See came into possession of a lot of documents related to these sorts of group, the groups, the Alta Vendita, uh, some of the sources are quoted in Monsignor Dillon's book. And I, and I think I, I, my personal opinion is that the popes never quite revealed fully their hand in terms of how they knew what they knew. We know the Vatican has long had, you know, arguably the best diplomatic network in the world, uh, best intelligence network, whatnot. But they knew from the very beginning that there is definitely a relationship between occultism and the revolutionary movements that were sweeping Europe in the 19th century many of which were overtly Marxist. But we had a predicate, and Monsignor Dillon talks about this, we had a predicate with the French Revolution, and this itself had been preceded by Voltaire, 
who whose entire purpose was to destroy the Catholic Church to and this goes in line with the whole nature alone thing. When you believe in nature alone, you believe man's reason is sufficient to attain his end. And so when you have Voltaire and the whole so-called enlightenment, you have this overemphasis on man's reason and his ability, the ability for our brain to understand um, completely everything it needs to know for its final end, which, of course, we completely reject as Catholics. It, it completely, all the truths of faith, it knocks out. And so all of that had been prepared you know, a century or so before Marx. And then Marx comes along and, uh, you know, combining with Hegel, the whole, again, as I said earlier, the dialectical materialism, Marx kind of provided this, well, set up these two uh, bipolar aspects of society, and that will provide the impetus to go forward. It's very interesting because I think one of the, it's one of the shorter chapters, but one of the most important chapters in the book is called The War Party and the Intellectual Party of Freemasonry. And it, it, <laughs> Monsignor Dillon basically talks about Monsignor Dillon, here's what he claims. He claims, and Pope Leo XIII endorsed this, so I'm assuming Pope Leo XIII didn't see anything crazy wrong with this. Uh, Monsignor Dillon claimed that there was a secretive directory that centrally controlled all or most of the occult groups in the world that, was mm -hmm. that were seeking to overturn Christendom, okay? He claimed that this directory was headed by one individual with a very, very few people around them that knew about it and that this one individual he actually gives one example at least of who he thought one of them was at the time uh, lord palmerston he was the british prime minister 1840s early 1850s somewhere in there and he gives all sorts of evidence for why he believes lord palmerston was the head of this directory at the time and and so he believes that this directory has successors it's like a sort of dark apostolic succession in a way the final successor of this directory will be antichrist and that most people don't know the identity of this guy at any given time but but this directory centrally controls everything and what it does is it has what's called the intellectual party and the war party the intellectual party is the ideas the legislators whatever the war party is i guess we could say the activists the street demonstrators maybe those who get violent and basically, I think this was, I may be forgetting a detail or two, but basically the intellectual party always knows what the war party is doing, but the war party doesn't always know what the intellectual party is doing. So they're kept separate. But the point is, yeah. is that they can, they can look at what's happening in our society. I really do wonder sometimes how much of the gender stuff and the, I mean, when I grew up, you know, Democrats, and by the way, I hardly think Republicans are angels. So I'm a Republican, but oh gosh, don't get me started. But um but the Democrats were abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. Okay. Now it's like, no, this is a positive good. It's good for women to, to have an abortion. And then with the gender stuff, you know, I don't, you know, your audience doesn't need a news update on that. But it almost feels sometimes that again, they're they're purposely stretching out the difference between the two poles of society. And it it, it we all feel that tension. And so it's meant to push us somewhere. And, and so anyway, that's why I think there's a connection between the naturalism, the sola natura, the communism. Um, it's all meant to lower the horizon from the divine horizon of heaven as the ultimate goal to this earth as the ultimate goal. And ultimately, when you do that, uh, human desire, autonomy becomes the rule of the day. So apply that to marriage, easy divorce laws, no fault divorce. No fault divorce was a very Masonic sort of thing. Uh, we know for a fact that um, I'm forgetting which uh, uh, Tim Gordon has talked about this before, 
But the justice who wrote the Everson opinion in 47, I believe, he was a, a Hugo Black, I think it was. He was a Freemason, you know, getting getting prayer and, and church involvement out of schools. Um, the guys behind contraception, allowing pornography. There were there was there were definitely uh, justices on our Supreme Court who were Freemasons, and this was their entire goal. In 47, they completely reinterpreted the First Amendment. The First Amendment very clearly says Congress shall make no law. Okay, so it applies to Congress. And throughout our history, up to 1890, various U.S. states had religious establishments. They were allowed, you know, Presbyterian here, Congregationalist there, whatever. Um, but in, in 47, they completely reinterpreted the First Amendment to apply to the states via the 14th Amendment. Tim Gordon talks about this a lot. But uh, that was not, you know, I think there are some problems with the founding. I'm working on a book on that right now. So, I, you know, I think there are good things about the founding, some very problematic things about the founding. But that was certainly not the founding intention that the First Amendment would be applied to the states. And so, but that was a Masonic attempt to basically invert the constitutional order and even prevent religious establishments at the state level. And so all these things are meant to, it, you know, there's a divine horizon, there's a natural horizon. It's meant to lower it to the natural horizon. And frankly, I think there are plenty of forces on the capitalistic side. I think I think to divide the world between capitalism and communism is becoming increasingly naive, in my opinion. Uh, we're seeing... Um, the forces of rank corporatism. I think Soab Amari has a new book on this or will be having a new book on this, a private tyranny. Um, we all know what this is like. You guys have been building a new platform to avoid this very issue. Um, so whether it's controlled by some central state apparatus, which maybe it will be with AI, I mean, who knows the possibilities of AI and the ability to track all sorts of things and do it quickly and, and whatnot. But if whether it's controlled through a state apparatus or, or a corporate apparatus, what does it matter? And I feel like the warning of this came from Alexander Solzhenitsyn himself. There was no one who was a more anti-communist warrior than Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And in his 78 address to Harvard at the Harvard commencement, he bluntly said, I, I, I don't want to recommend American of uh, the American model to my country. You're spiritually, you're spiritually exhausted. Uh, you don't even follow the basics of your own founding. And no, you are not the model I want for my home country. <laughs> so there, and Fulton J. Sheen talks a lot about this. He talks about how, and and so does Christopher Dawson, a great Catholic historian. Um, look, I'm for a free market. I I love all that stuff. But at the same time, we have to realize how much of our life we saw this during COVID, the essential places of of business. Churches? No. Uh, you know, uh strip joints, sure. Home Depot, yeah. Uh grocery stores make sense. Obviously, you need food. But uh, all sorts of things, and and churches are not. Why? Because in our modern society, it's all about the sort of fulfillment of our short-term desires. The, the divine horizon has been completely lost to where we don't even see churches as essential business anymore. I mean, they're not a business, but you know what I mean. That's a really, really good point. But there's just something confusing here. If they're talking about wanting human nature is enough, you'd think reason is what they use. But they seem to be dismantling reason. That's what's really, really weird. The whole trans thing is getting completely bizarre. People are being forced to say stuff that they know is untrue, that's obviously untrue. This is becoming total insanity. The, the, you know, beyond 
the horrific things they're doing to kids and the operations and whatever else and, and giving them drugs that are going to harm them forever. But now you have people identifying, adults identifying as babies and being treated as such. And they, they'd make a mockery of human reason. Where Where's the appeal to, yeah, we've got it all together. We don't need to go to spiritual because we've got, they're making it insane. That's a, a very deep question and a very appropriate one. I write about it a lot in the introduction. Um, why this is the case. Essentially, I'd say this is this is happening because the Catholic faith is true. And what do I mean by that? Um, the Catholic Church has always said the the natural law is binding on all of us. It's kind of summarized in the Ten Commandments, whatnot. But we've also always said, again, as we've said throughout this conversation, we cannot attain our end without grace. That means we cannot even perceive, let alone follow, the natural law with any real consistency in a state of original sin. We need grace to fully perceive and then to fully will these things. St. Thomas Aquinas in his, you know, his, his uh, treatment of grace in the Summa is very, very clear about this. So, so that's why when, when, you, when nature rejects grace, it doesn't become more natural. It becomes unnatural. It becomes less than itself, just like Adam and Eve became less than what they were intended to be when they rejected God's commandment. So I think that's why. And also with the enlightenment, because the transcend, we, we started looking at nature as something to be manipulated and control for the purpose of power. Whereas, and that's always been a temptation in human life. You know, we can't say it was never like that before, but in, in the medieval mindset, the ancient mindset, uh, let's just assume, you know, the medieval Christian mindset, you know, nature was sacramental, meaning you looked at, something in nature and it you automatically associated it with the divine how does this natural thing point to that which is higher than itself that really changed with the enlightenment with you know descartes uh, i think therefore i am the uh, newtonian project to basically they wanted to arrive at certainty after the fall of the magisterium or the rejection of the magisterium it didn't fall but the rejection of the magisterium by much of by a good deal of christendom there's this aching search for certainty. How do we know? How do we know? How do we know? And so this, this went from the theological realm with Protestantism and bled into the philosophical. And the Enlightenment project was basically, we can arrive at certainty through a set of axiomatic processes in our mind. And But then what that does is it changes the view of nature from sacramental to mechanistic. So that's why I think you, you have two things at the same time. You have this regression into unnatural irrationality, as you've talked about, while at the same time, we have those who are, I mean, we're making technological, you know, leaps and bounds that are astounding right now. Uh, AI is obviously the most recent example, but it's like the epitome of this purely mechanistic approach to nature, this pure, purely materialistic, anti-sacramental approach to nature. And so that's why I think we see both, ironically, at the same time. Uh, that, that's my theory, at least. Hello, friends. To celebrate the momentous overturning of Roe v. Wade, we at LifeSite have minted just under 10,000 of these brand new limited edition pro-life silver rounds. Now, each round is stamped with the image of the Supreme Court of the United States featuring the date that the High Court delivered this historic victory. And on the front of our pure silver rounds, LifeSite's logo surrounded by a brilliant sunburst and draped with olive branches. They, of course, commemorate our 25-year anniversary of LifeSite News. We began in 1997 in September, so September 
of 2022 was 25 years. These one ounce silver rounds are available from our partners at stjosephspartners.com, where you can fulfill all of your silver and gold needs in this perilous time. May God bless you. The aim that we talked about originally, but we, we went on specifically to bring it up later, the aim of Freemasonry specifically against Catholicism. It's funny, it's not just Christianity generally. No, but it's it's really about Catholicism in particular. Tell us about that and what is their program for destroying the church? So here's where I'll get a little bit into the eschatological. I, I've lectured about this elsewhere. I didn't write about it a ton in the book, but it's my theory. I think it fits really well. Let's go to um, 2 Thessalonians 2. I'm sure much of your audience knows it. It's a topic I've been studying a lot, reading all the patristic commentaries. So 2 Thessalonians 2 is where St. Paul talks about the coming of the Antichrist. There are some Thessalonians who thought the day of the Lord was at hand, and Paul was writing to tell them, no, 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 don't let anybody deceive you about that. No letter for me, whatever. These are what will happen. These are the things that will happen before the day of the Lord. Okay. So he actually doesn't use the term Antichrist. He uses the term man of lawlessness which has been unanimously interpreted to refer to Antichrist. So, and I talk, I do talk about this a, a, a bit in the book, the introduction. So I thought, okay, well, if Antichrist is the man of lawlessness, then what is the church taught is the, sor is the source of lawfulness, okay? Obviously, we know that's Jesus Christ, ultimately. But just how does that play out in the world? Well, the church has always taught the two powers, the spiritual power and the temporal power. Uh, we know from Romans 13, the temporal power holds the sword, and they hold it for justice, to enact justice against evildoers and to support the righteous. Okay. And we also know the spiritual power with the, the hierarchy. They have the, the, the authority to speak for God. Here's the thing. Prior to the incarnation, uh, both of those, they didn't. the pagans didn't conceive as a temporal and a spiritual, but that was part of the problem. The temporal and the spiritual were completely the same. This is why you have the divinization of emperors. Uh, this is why pharaohs were seen as gods, essentially walking, you know, living gods. Um, you know, this is why Caesar and Augustus and all these guys were divinized by the Roman Senate after they died. Okay, so there was no separation between temporal and and uh, divine, I guess you could say, which again aligns with what I was saying about sola natura. The the two, there was no distinction with Christ. We know, give to Caesar what is Caesar, give to gods what is God. We saw a type of this in Israel where the priesthood and the kingship were separated, right? The king had to write a book of the law that was in the custodian of the priests, as Deuteronomy 17. Um, so we see a type of it in Israel. And then in the church, we see this kind of, this is the Catholic political theology for, you know, I mean, I don't know how many people still hold to it now. I still do, but but for 2,000 years. Even my confirmation saint, St. Ignatius, I call him the red pill because he really showed me my Protestantism was not tenable. But but even he talks about, you know, the authority of the emperor and he says and the authority of the bishop. I mean, even he in 107 AD about is making the same distinction. Now, why is this distinction important? Because the temporal power, a purely natural power bereft of grace is not capable of leading people to God. It's just not. It needs the spiritual power in the sense that our minds without grace, we need grace to discern the natural law, to discern what God requires. The same thing with the temporal power. The temporal power requires the spiritual power to lead it in the right direction. And the most famous articulation of this is Pope Galatius I to, I think, Emperor Anastasius. I quote from it in the introduction. But it, he makes a very interesting distinction. He refers to the temporal. It's often referred to as the two powers. But when you look at the Latin, he refers to the temporal power, potestas. He refers to the spiritual 
authority, auctoritas, okay? Those are very different. You know, one is a sword and one is authority, right? Prior to the incarnation, as I was saying earlier, the world was completely controlled by this alliance between the humans, humans and demonic through the pagan mystery system, okay? Now, what does Paul say? He says there's this mystery of iniquity, but it's being restrained by something. And I'm sure you, you know this topic well. The, the word is katakon. Now, he refers to it in two different ways. He refers to it as a neuter it and an individual he. Now, there's debate about this in the fathers, and I, I don't want to get too in the weeds. If you have a follow-up question, I can. But essentially, what there's this, there's this restraining influence that is holding back the mystery of iniquity, which Paul says is active in the first century, okay? And then Paul says there will be a point where this restrainer stops restraining. And at that point, the Antichrist will burst forth. Okay. So here's my here's the short version right there. This is such a big topic. I'm sorry. Um, in Apocalypse 17, St. John, you know, writing about 80, 90 or so, he refers to this beast that will come back, which I think is Antichrist, but also the system that reigned. When, when Satan was tempting our Lord, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. This was the beast system. This was the beast system he was trying to tempt our Lord with through some other means than the cross, okay? Which is why Jesus called Peter Satan when Peter wanted to prevent him from being crucified. Um, so St. John in Apocalypse 17 or 18, he refers to this beast that is not, so in AD 90 is not, that was, so sometime before AD 90 was, and will be again, Okay. So I, my personal opinion is that that is the pagan mystery system, the ruling of demons over humanity through an active alliance between them, and that the Catholic Church, and they talk about this in so many of their writings, the Catholic Church suppressed this. Not perfectly. This is not a utopia. Uh, Christendom was not perfect. There were problems. There's human sin, all that kind of stuff. But the Catholic Church suppressed this, and you see this in all their writings. They, they again, Albert Pike, Manly P. Hall, whatnot, usually through subtle references, but sometimes very overt. They basically say, yeah, the Catholic Church was keeping down the enlightenment of the human race. It was keeping down this gnosis that we could all access to, you know, you know, do the sorts of stuff we've been talking about. Um, but we're restoring that. We're bringing it back. And I personally believe that's very, very related to the catacon no longer restraining. I don't think it's done restraining just yet, but I think my personal opinion is it's getting quite close. Uh, I can expand on that further, but 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 that's why I think the Catholic Church is their number one target. Yeah, they want to go after Christians in general, but they're very very clear in many of their writings that the big Kahuna is the Catholic Church. Because uh, frankly, Protestantism doesn't have the same view of grace that we do. You know, Protestantism has redefined grace less as an ontological. Uh, reality and more as a legal construct. It's like, yeah, well, demons are not threatened by legal constructs as much as they are changed souls, souls that actually ha are infused with the grace of God, right? So, yeah, they want to go after Protestants, but frankly, there's a long history of Protestant ministers being Masons and not having a problem with it. You know, many of the early American ministers were Freemasons and no one had a problem with it. They didn't see it as incompatible with Christianity. Um, so, and then the, the popes have always declaimed Freemasonry from, I think 1738 was the first one. I, I have a whole list of all the papal statements against Freemasonry, but, but this is why the, the, the Catholic church is the big kahuna in the room because it is the one that suppressed this pagan mystery system. One more point. When you read the church fathers, it's very, very interesting. I have a set of like references I'm building 
about the building of the catacon. There are all sorts of stories in the church fathers about um, encounters between the priesthood and you know the demonic, frankly. Um, I don't necessarily believe every single one. Not every single one is is retold by a saint or whatever. But um, but literally, uh, the demonic speaking, causing statues to speak, false miracles, magicians. One of the most famous stories that was widely believed by early Catholics was this encounter between St. Paul and St. Peter with Simon Magus before Nero, I believe. Simon Magus, you know, Magus coming from magician. Um, and the prayers of the apostles stopped him, right? So there's this, as the church is expanding, uh, that was one of the key apologetics that people like Augustine and others would say, Eusebius would say to the pagans, like, look at these prophecies from the Old Testament and look at what's happening all around you. The pagan altars are falling, the temples are falling. And then there are a number of stories where like in Alexandria, I believe Sosamon was the historian that talked about this. They uncovered these pagan uh, chambers of doom, I guess you could call them, where where literally as the pagan system was dying, they found chambers that were full of dead bodies. And even as uh, even as there were pagan emperors like Licinius, uh, uh, he was a uh, he was confronting Constantine uh, right before their final battle. He's cutting open pregnant women, and not to be too graphic, but he's cutting open pregnant women, cutting open their children, and reading their entrails. I mean, to try and figure out if he could get an omen for the battle. I mean, so there's this constant struggle with this pagan mystery system. And then when you look at what the church was suppressing, even during the medieval period, not to say everything was right and just, of course, but um, uh, it was suppressing uh, women and witchcraft and sorcery that was constantly about abortion, constantly about contraception, uh, sacrificing children. Now, why would they want to do that? Well, frankly, I think these, this is how the demonic uh, locks the human will into their own agenda. If it's like, if I can get you to kill a child, then I've got you. There's there's literally nothing else you won't do at that point. So um, yeah, this is a big topic, but they, everywhere, this is why they see the Catholic Church as the great, the and, the and the and frankly, the alliance between the temporal and the spiritual powers that the church has always believed were the source of lawfulness, uh, not perfection, but lawfulness, uh, they want to destroy that that alliance between throne and altar. They always did. And by the way, I'm not here saying I'm not a monarchist. I'm fine with monarchy, but you know, I'm fine with a constitutional republic. Um, but uh, but that's what they wanted to destroy: the alliance between temporal and spiritual. And so I think the catacon is likely Christendom. It's the church. It's that. Uh, it's the sources of lawfulness that oppose the coming of the man of lawlessness. And so when that catacon stops restraining. Um, we know what comes next, and it, it certainly seems that there's a case to be made that it's it's getting closer and closer to, to no longer restraining. Hi, everyone. This is John Henry Weston. We hope you enjoyed this program. To see more like it, be sure to hit the subscribe button below to get all the latest content from LifeSite News. Check the links in the description to read more and connect with us on social media so that you can stay up to date with all the latest life, family, faith, and freedom news. Thanks for watching, and may God bless you.